She's like a sort of meat factory where you use every piece of the animal. So right? she's like she's like nose to tail cooking. She's like that's right. Uh, you slice yeah. her up yeah. every which way. Welcome to the best women. This week with Gail Dimes. Gail's been researching and writing about the porn industry and sexual violence for more than three decades. And I've known her and worked with her for much of that time. She is co-founder and president of the non-profit organisation Culture Reframed, which looks at assisting parents of children, including pre-teens, to talk to their kids about porn and about the associated harms and danger. And Gail frames pornography as a public health issue, something that not everybody would agree with, but it's certainly a really persuasive way to get governments and policymakers and legislators to look at this issue and to look at the myriad of harms it causes, not just for the consumers, but remember, for the women and men on set. Now, Gail is very clear that you have to look at pornography in a framework of misogyny and in the quest for a women's liberation. She's no moralist. She's no anti-sex, faint-hearted Victorian lady. I think she once said that if you were to say that those feminists critical of porn are anti-sex, you may as well say that we're anti-food if we don't like McDonald's. Over to Gail. There's a big shift going on from increasingly going from, instead of the free porn sites like Pornhub running it, they're now getting real competition from sex camming, like OnlyFans and Chatterbait. There's two reasons. On the women make a tiny bit more money, but not much. They make on average $180 a month. OnlyFans takes 20%. Because the women earn so little, they have what's called a referral system on OnlyFans, that if you bring your friends in, you'll get a percentage of what they make. Um, so not only are they pimping out the women, they're turning the women into pimps themselves. I see. So it's like a pyramid scheme. Exactly. It's a pimp pyramid scheme. That's exactly what it is. It's a pimp pyramid scheme. So what's happening is that um, there's been this big PR push because the porn industry is very involved in this, the mainstream porn industry, because if you go on to, for example, Pornhub, you've got the only fan girls of the girl of the week. And then it, so they're cross marketing. Right. And also it spewed this entire business model where you've got all these companies now who are setting up the sites for the women, showing them how to make money, how to bring in more users to your... Because it's like going on Huffington Post. There was so much to read, the chances of you ever getting read was minimal. Right. So they're figuring out... So there's companies that help do the whole thing. They even um, offer a service, you see, because what the guys who go on OnlyFans want, they want to feel like they're connected. Oh, that's the worst. Yes, but this is what they feel. They want to... So what happens is these companies will actually pretend to be this woman and will respond to these guys so that... Because the ones who are doing well, the women, can't possibly respond because these guys want an ongoing text or however they respond through the uh, site. So they then outsource it to a company that takes a percent again, of the women's earnings, but they pretend to be her. Do you know, that's fascinating because when I was doing research on the male order bride industry, um, and this this was 
in particular in, in Ukraine, where it's massive, as you know. That's exactly what was going on. So the the way that the agencies ran it was that the, the man would write to the agency saying, I want a 25-year-old blonde, big tits, blah, blah, blah. And then they'd match him with basically a photograph of a model who they had on the books who may or may not be up for marrying some dude and moving to Delaware. Often she's just allowed her pornographic type photographs, imagery, video to be used on the site. And he's then writing backwards and forwards to her through the agency. And each time he sends an email, it costs $10 for it to be delivered. And each time he gets an email back from her or a photograph or whatever, it costs more. And what they've done is, and I, I interviewed this young African-American man who was writing the letters for them. For the roommate, for the Ukrainian woman. Exactly. So he was writing it on her behalf. He was getting a few dollars each time he did that. They were raking it in. Bob from Delaware was being shafted sideways, not that we care. And <laughs> and the women <laughs> the women were often just a photograph. They've all they've all learned from each other and the crossover is massive with all of these industries. I hadn't realised it. Oh, the cross-marketing is enormous. I mean, that's what... You see, what's happened is very few people study the actual business model. Right? They don't... So when... This is why, when you study the business model, this is the best way to join the dots between all the different areas of the porn... of the sex industry. Because here we can draw... Here, what we've just done, we've drawn links between pornography, prostitution, mail-order brides camming, all of those, because that's the business model of the sex industry. They're all joining hands to figure out a way to increase the monetization of these women's bodies. So yeah. she's really, you know what she's like? She's like, um, she's like a sort of meat factory where you use every piece of the animal. So right? she's like, she's like nose to tail cooking. She's like, that's right. You uh, slice yeah. her up yeah. every which way. So a bit goes to camming, a bit goes to pornography, some goes to the male order bread. But she's, there's, she's really, they use everything they can. They drain her of everything as a way to monetize her. So you've got really these, these kind of, you know, capitalist predators really feeding off. The industry and they're making the connections and what's interesting is when i go out and lecture to any groups we're talking pediatricians child protection anti-violence organizations they have no idea of the links they don't even actually know what pornography is right forget that but go beyond that and they see each one as a discrete entity and the, really the best way to get rid of that is to show the economic links the value mm. chain of a woman from production right through to distribution. Mm -hmm. And then that value chain, right? and it's interesting because in value chain, each part of the production of the product, you add value to it. So this is exactly what's going on. Mm -hmm. You're adding value to her through camming, through mail order, through all of that. I mean, I don't think there's any other industry that manages to add as much value to every part of the value chain as the sex industry. Well, that's that's absolutely true. And looking at the way that surrogacy and prostitution aren't just similar in 
from the kind of um, philosophical, ethical or political basis in that parts of a woman's body or access to a woman's body is being sold. It, it's, it's actually, that crossover is really very helpful for the pimps because, of course, if you've got prostituted women and they become pregnant, you can sell the baby. Or if you've got a surrogacy fattening, baby fattening farm, and you can also sell pregnant women's bodies to punters, to Johns, because That's that right. is, of course... And you know, pornography. There's a whole section on pregnant women. Right. And it makes absolute sense. And then when I went to Cambodia and did an investigation on the, the, the breast milk industry, the breast milk that was going to rich white Americans to feed their surrogate babies or going to male kinksters who had a fetish about women's breasts and breast milk and pregnant women, again, fed by pornography. So the whole thing, it's a capitalist wet dream, isn't it? As well as misogyny. Totally. totally. And you know what? So few people explore how the sausage is made here. Mm. That's the thing. Once you know how the sausage is made, then you get to see exactly the links between them all. On every level, how much money can you squeeze? And they're coming in with new and new ways to figure out how to do that. So when, when people say, and you must have been asked this question a million times, when people say, yes, but what about the kind of homemade porn that's just about couples having sex and then others watch it and it turns them on because that's their shtick. How can you say that that's part of that misogynistic capitalist industry? What do you okay. say to them? Or do you even bother answering them anymore? No, it's actually important that they know this because there's a big category on Pornhub called amateur. Amateur. Actually, is part of the porn industry. The porn industry training certain um, producers, directors, photographers to make it look amateur. I mean, you might have some people sending in their own stuff, but generally speaking, the ones that really get promoted on, you know, Pornhub via algorithms are made by the porn industry to make it think, and they think it's amateur. The second thing is, if you think about a video of two people having sex, right, the reality is you'd probably fall asleep halfway through. <laughs> it would be as boring as hell, right? It's yes. all choreographed. I mean, you... Anything that, even if it's a real, you know, homemade, is still choreographed to fit into the blueprint of the representation of women's bodies that are pornographic. Otherwise, they wouldn't watch it. That's not what they're interested in. They're not interested in watching a guy and a woman say heterosexual porn, say, I love you and I care for you. You know, the things you do during sex and the connection and all of that, if there's real intimacy. God, first of all, they wouldn't know what to do with it. Secondly, they'd be bored to death by it, right? So um, what I say is, you know, it does. It rarely exists. And it, the other thing is, if it does, I don't know where it is, anywhere, real, an unedited, you know, non-pornographic representation of it. I don't know certainly who's buying it, because I can't imagine anyone's buying it, right? So let's talk about that site that a lot of people sometimes discussed, which is Made Love Not Porn by Cindy Gallup. Mm -hmm. So interestingly, um, I was speaking to Cindy when we were doing a um, debate, and she said that she thought she was going to go bankrupt because when she went to venture capitalists for money, they weren't interested because they said it's not violent enough. Wow. 
Yeah. Uh, which way does it work? Those that consume porn learn to become misogynist. Is it driven by misogyny or does it make misogynists of consumers? Or all, all of, of it? Oh, well, listen, let's imagine the average, let's think about the average 11 year old boy. He's not looking for a woman being tortured, right? He puts butts into Google or boobies. They very rarely put porn. And what he thinks he's probably going to get, if he's lucky, is a naked woman. He doesn't know he's going to see a woman being strangled till she passes out, that she's being choked, that she's being orally, anally, vaginally penetrated, which is virtually every uh, video up there. He doesn't know that. He's aroused and he's masturbating. And they're saying things like, we know what you want, this is for you. There's all the text around it. So here's this boy who's probably got no history of sex, right? no repertoire given his age, and he is being socialised by the porn industry into misogyny. Right? That's how that happens there. He, you know, I mean, obviously, if you can't live in patriarchy, be an 11-year-old boy and not internalise misogynist views, but they're not driven home the way that porn drives them home. Think how he feels, ashamed, scared, self-loathing. Now, the power of pornography is unlike any other power of any propaganda because pornography cements the images in your head via orgasm. Right? There's no other form of propaganda that is a full-on body slam where your neurons, your limbic system, your arousal system, all of it. What other propaganda delivers messages to men's brains via the penis? Only porn. And that is an incredibly powerful delivery system. So what you're doing is you're um, shaping his sexual template. You're providing tropes of misogyny and violence, which, by the way, exist in the real world. I mean, if we didn't live in a patriarchal society, the chances that we're not watching one porn movie, actually, you probably wouldn't know what he's looking at, to be honest with you, because you have to come to this with a kind of misogynistic template of what an average like year old boy will do. But it makes immediate sense, given the way he's been socialised in patriarchy. What doesn't make sense for him is that he didn't know that as a man, which is what he's going to define himself as, that this is what he wants. Because the porn industry is saying all the time, we know you, you want it. You want this. And they're saying, even before you've got your hands dirty, your hands are dirty because we know you. We're speaking to you. You, the 11-year-old boy out there, you didn't know this about yourself, but we knew it. We knew it. Yeah. So that's the power of pornography. And that's why patriarchy, I think, is so powerful and cemented in men's brains, is via pornography. So that's why you, when you left academia you set up Culture Reframed because you wanted to address this. I mean, tell us about that, the work that you do in your um, non-profit. Let's talk about how it started because that was really interesting. So, you know, I've been an academic. I'd given a lecture to, it was to a hospital, to paediatricians. They have grand rounds here where once a month they have to go and get extra training. Everyone walks in at nine o'clock as a paediatrician. By 9.15, they're all parents. You understand? They're gone. They are panicked by what they see. And this is standard. And I remember after I was finished looking out at the audience and they look like they always look when I'm finished, which is 
literally, they don't know what to do with themselves. They look like the deer caught in headlights. And I remember standing there thinking, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep going around everywhere, doing this to people and leaving them with nothing. No resources, nothing. And bizarrely, that same month, I got a, a keynote at a women's philanthropy conference, very wealthy women. And after I was finished, a group of women came up to me and they said, we want to give you money, quite a lot, to start a non-profit. And I thought, now I loved being, you know, I love my students, I love teaching, but I thought this doesn't happen twice in anyone's life. No one else is going to come up and offer me money to start a non-profit on, for my work of my life. So I stepped down to the emerita position so that I could work full time. And what we did is we brought together um, top pediatricians, public health experts, um, adolescent health experts, sexual health experts. And we sat down and we said, what do we need to do? And it was very clear when you look at the research, the most important thing about helping to build resilience and resistance in kids to porn is to basically build knowledge, confidence and skills in adults so that they can talk to their kids about porn. So what we decided to do is start with parents. So the first thing we did is we built a program for parents. And if you go onto the Culture Reframed website and just click on our programs, we've got one for parents of tweens, one for parents of teens. Both are free, by the way. You just have to put your name in and both are free. You can go in for five minutes, five hours, five days. And at the end, we even have conversation scripts. So that around, so how to talk to kids about porn, how to talk about sexting, how to talk about body image. And I'll tell you why we have scripts. Just before we're about to release the first program for parents of twins, I was in LA doing a speaker talk and I spoke to thousands of parents. And I said, at the end of the program, we will have bullet points on how to have conversations with your kid about and they would literally leap out of their seats and say, no bullet points, script it out. Tell us what to write, say word for word. They didn't want bullet points. So we had to go back to our expert who was writing the conversation. And we said that they want them scripted out. They don't want the bullet points. So what we did, and of course, we don't expect parents to keep to these scripted out conversations, but they wanted that. And then we know for a fact that your kid would rather be anywhere in the world than talking to you about porn. So what we did is we said, this will probably go badly, right? This will go badly. And we used the, uh, the position that many sex educators use is do not have one 100 minute conversation with your kid about porn. Have a hundred one minute conversation. Right, yeah, that makes sense. Anyway, it became, we got it up there. And then suddenly we find that the medical profession is coming at us, therapists, educators, you name it, because there's nothing like it in the world. So now it's been, by the way, translated into Turkish. We're working on getting it translated into Spanish, Excellent. into French, into Portuguese. We have a culturally framed, um, trained a thousand therapists in Turkey who are going across Turkey giving culture reflections to parents on how to talk to their kids. If you can do it in Turkey, which is such a diverse society, and Culturally Framed has worked with the Psychological Association of Turkey. And um, the first time I gave the lecture, when they came to me, we had a thousand people on the Zoom. 
and um, the head of the association said, you've got no idea, this has gone viral all over Turkey, on Instagram, everywhere, she said. And from there, basically, we've trained all these therapists and parents. It's so comprehensive. Do you think that there's a resurgence of the feminist or human rights-based anti-porn movement that it's starting to rise up again as an issue? I would go further than that. I would say there has been a big narrative shift here. So, you know, when you've been doing this, like you and I, for, what, 30, 40 years, I mean, you, you can sort of take the temperature of where you're at very easily. So I used to get from journalists the standard, so Gail Dines, you're a right-wing evangelical Christian book burner. And I would say, well, actually, I'm a left-wing radical feminist Jew, so do you want to start <laughs> off with over? Um, and what I found is I very rarely ever get a journalist who is hostile, ever. That is from after 30-odd years where virtually everyone was hostile. And you know what's the most interesting? It's not just the older ones who are not hostile, it's the ones in their 20s and 30s who lived this. That's really good and news. It is. It's great news because you know what? They lived it. And they knew something didn't feel right. And then they somehow, they would stumble upon my TED talk or they would stumble upon Culture Refrain. And they said, suddenly, the, it made sense why they felt the way they did. Because everyone's saying porn is empowering. Everyone's saying it's fun. I don't feel that way. And then they would, and you would literally see, they would be, even the journalists would say, I am so grateful. This, you've had so put so much of it made sense to me now that I didn't understand why I felt this way. And even when I lecture to paediatricians, the younger ones, they're the same because they said, you know what? I did women's studies courses, which of course you need to stay away from when it comes to pornography and prostitution. Exactly. A lot of them did women's studies courses and then went on to med school. And they said, you know, this was like such a shock to have come into doing to thinking porn is good and then working as an emergency room doctor and seeing the injuries to women, they couldn't square what was going on with the ideology that they internalised from all this third wave blah, blah, blah crap. The, the human rights I've not seen. I have to say, actually, that's one group I've not seen take on porn. Well, they, they, they are on the wrong side of this debate, as they are with other forms of sexual exploitation, exactly. amnesty with prostitution... The lot. So if, if you support if you support the porn trade, you support the sex trade in, in general. Exactly. So that's the one group. But other groups, I mean look, Julie, I got a keynote at the American Academy of Pediatrics in 2016 with ten thousand pediatricians. What is the chance ever that we thought we would get our critique of pornography in front of 10,000 paediatricians, the biggest body in the United States that makes policy for paediatricians. That's incredible. Let me give you another example. Keynote last year to the annual conference of the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges. And from that, we're now training family court judges. And we're doing it, remember, from the position of harm and violence against women and children. Who thought we would get to these places? When we first started this, we were marginalised. And I'll tell you what's done it. What's done it, first of all, is, and I want to say, I stand on the shoulders of our sisters who did this. Right? Remember, if I hadn't read Walking, 
I would still be looking at yeah. porn thinking, oh, you know, I don't like this, but I can't figure out what I don't like. Absolutely. And it was, you know, all those women who, who... And, you know, we have to do a shout-out to Andrea the Walking here because I don't know how she figured that out before anyone else did, that it is the section, the eroticisation of domination and violence against women. I mean, we know that now and it falls off our tongue. Mm. But just to come up with it, that succinctly, on your own, as she's looking at it, you're absolutely right you're right and now she is having such a revival it's old walking was right um i mean i've written these articles myself you know she was hated she was seen as a man-hating monster and now of course her relevance is becoming more and more obvious there is a shift in the narrative even in a in a kind of broader sense culturally but but obviously what, what you're doing I mean, your work, your scholarly work, your campaigning work, your work um, as an NGO is huge. I mean, it really, sometimes you just need that, you need a few dedicated women and an approach that really latches on. And I think this is what's happened with Culture Reframed. Yeah, I do. The public health approach. Because remember, we, it's not like we change what we say, it's just reframe it within the public health approach so people can suddenly have a framework to put it in instead of the framework of crazy radical feminists mm -hmm. right who hate men that was that that was where they used to put us now you know when you go in with all the scientific literature and you frame it as a public health crisis of the digital age which is what we call pornography it's a whole different world so i didn't think i would live to see the day that all the work that was done before me and in my generation on pornography would become mainstream in many organs. I didn't, I really did not. I thought, well, I remember thinking when, you know, it was at my lowest and, you know, it's not easy doing this for 30 odd years looking at porn. Mm. I remember thinking, well, I'm, first of all, I've got no choice. I have to do this because I cannot unsee what I've seen. I cannot unhear what I've heard. And if I don't do this, I'll go mad. If I don't do activism, right, I'll go mad. So the, this was no choice, but I used to think I'll just plant the seeds and then the next generation, you know, hopefully. No, it's actually bearing fruit right now, right now, right this moment. And this is what we have to jump on. And I wish, and I wish the feminist movement was more organised around this issue. There's not enough of it. I have to say, there's not enough because we need this absolutely more than ever before because you know what we've lost a generation of boys to porn are we going to lose the next generation that was gail dines thankfully there are those like gail who are knee deep in the trenches fighting this stuff what really struck me amongst other things that she said was about how we have a lost generation of boys and men to pornography this is terrible as gail says Porn couldn't exist without misogyny. And we need to fight porn. We need to fight misogyny. And Gail is a wonderful example of how we do that. Thank you for listening.